If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. simple handheld game may have changed the trajectory for modern video games. If Nintendo didn't experiment with the Game & Watch, they might not have had the confidence to double down on video games and change the world forever. The Nintendo Game & Watch was a series of handheld video games released by Nintendo in the 70s and 80s, and their success would give rise to the Famicom and then the Nintendo Entertainment System. This is an interesting story that kind of got all pieced together as I was looking back on it and realized how significant this thing was. Be- depending on when you're listening to this show, the there was a re-release of the Nintendo Game & Watch, and the company's kind of going back to its roots. And this is a look back at how influential this thing was and how it you know really changed the future of video games and entertainment. So before we start, if you're new here, welcome. And if you've been here for every show, welcome back. I'm Jamie. This is the Everything 80s podcast where I look back at all the best parts of the greatest decade. So before we get going, if you want, go ahead and subscribe. That way you get the shows automatically sent whenever I release them. I try to put out new shows every Wednesday. Okay, let's have a look at this interesting story of the Nintendo Game & Watch. The best place to begin is with a quick look at the history of Nintendo. Nintendo as a company goes back a lot further than you may realize. Their origins begin all the way back in 1889. And you might not believe it, but Nintendo first started out selling trading cards. These cards were called Hanafuda, which meant flower cards. You could play several different games with them, and they were basically used for gambling. These cards were so old, they were actually printed on a type of tree bark before they moved on to other materials. If you've ever wondered why there was random flower power in Mario Brothers and the ability to shoot fireballs, it was because of these flower cards. This is one of the original traditions from the early days of the Nintendo trading card company that continued into Nintendo to this day. Nintendo was first called Nintendo Kopoi, which meant leave luck to heaven. They started to expand by doing some cross-promotion with the Disney company to use those characters on their cards in 1955. They were then calling themselves Nintendo Yamochi, then the Nintendo Trading Card Company, before dropping it all just to become Nintendo in 1963. 
that's a quick overview. I have shows that go way more in depth on the history of Nintendo and video games. You can check the archives for that. But now they move away from the trading cards and into technology. And as I mentioned, Nintendo has always been an expanding company, but they weren't really able to narrow down the exact company they wanted to be. They dabbled in many different products, including vacuum cleaners, if you can believe it. They then realized there was a huge market for children's products. This led them to start making toys, and since the technology was growing by leaps and bounds in Japan, they ventured into electronic toys. For the longest time, Nintendo was struggling to keep their heads above water, especially in those early years, because they were not an established toy company and were competing against gigantic established Japanese toy companies. The one thing that helped them compete was the introduction of an electronic arm they called the Ultra Hand. It was a robotic arm that could move and hold on to things. It was a big hit and sold over 1 million units. This gave Nintendo the confidence to keep exploring different technological toys. One thing they came up with in 1972 was a solar-powered light gun, and you can probably see where that one's going. A lot of the technical developments for Nintendo were due to a man named Konpai. He worked as a technician, and since there wasn't a lot to do at Nintendo in those days, he had a lot of free time. This allowed him to sketch out ideas and designs, and he was the man behind that ultra hand. Nintendo realized they had some talent. Now they slowly move into video games. Nintendo didn't jump right into handheld video games just yet. They played around with a few ideas, including the Love Tester, electric bongos, and an electronic periscope, then different computerized versions of games like Mahjong. But this was all helping them set the stage for video games. One day in 1977, Kampai was returning home by train from a business trip. He looked around the train and noticed a bunch of people were using calculators just to pass the time. There were no cell phones or portable electronics, and if you had read the entire newspaper, there wasn't much left to do. A big hobby for many people in Japan was to do calculations on their calculators the way we play games on our phones now. A light bulb went off in his head. What if there was another way for adults to kill time when they were out and about? It still needed to be something that was discreet and wouldn't disturb those around you. He didn't even have the specific idea of a handheld video game, but knew this was an idea worth exploring. So he took it to the president of Nintendo. They went to calculator producer Sharp Electronics about the idea of a possible collaboration and then struck a deal with them. The funny thing is, Nintendo's foray into video games had nothing to do with children. They wanted to appeal to adults that wanted something to pass the time, but they needed it to be private so no one could see they were playing a child's game. And this is what led to the creation of the Game & Watch. So Nintendo had a few specifications that were key in the development of an electronic toy. It had to be private, it had to be discreet, and it had to fit in the palm of an adult's hand. They decided that a device that was 4 by 3 inches was the perfect size. They could then come up with simple electronic games that could be played on these devices. They also had the idea to combine the game with the features of a watch. The very first game they came up with for the Game & Watch was called Ball. It involved a character having to juggle balls in the air. Not only was this the first handheld video game ever, it was the first one to use an LCD display. Ball was simple, but it got progressively harder. 
This was a key development, meaning that anyone could learn it quickly, but you wouldn't beat the game in a short while. You would have to develop your skills to go further in the game. And this is really the underlying attraction to all video games. The concept of simplicity would be important for all the Game & Watch titles. You, you should just be able to pick up a game and start playing it without having to read a manual. The silhouetted character used in those first few games would become to be known as Mr. Game & Watch. You can see him in some modern games now like Super Smash Bros. Ultimate. And if you are nearby YouTube or can get there, have a look for the early commercials for the first Game & Watches and you'll know that silhouette man, the Mr. Game & Watch. So what was the response to this new Game & Watch? It was originally intended, like I said, for adults, but they didn't seem to pay much notice to it. One group did, however, kids. Millions of children in Japan became enamored with these handheld games. This was great for Nintendo for a few reasons. One is that they could keep the games more simple and childish, and the second is they didn't have to worry about making the Game & Watch look stylish or elegant. Nintendo quickly brought out five new games with a gold and silver series. Besides Ball, some of the other games would include Fire and Manhole. Nintendo quickly improved the technology of the Game & Watch and offered new versions with wide screens. The screen was now 1.7 inches wide and would also use color. You then saw games like Parachutes, Octopus, Balloon Fight, and Donkey Kong Jr., which had a little character named Super Mario. It also didn't take long for Nintendo, Nintendo to put out game watches with licensed characters, and the first one was one of their old pals back from 1955, Mickey Mouse. By now, Nintendo had 18 different game and watches, but they did not stop there. This is the evolution of the game and watch, and now we're getting more into how it would influence modern video games. The next big thing Nintendo did was release a game and watch that had a double screen. They wanted to expand the capabilities of the gameplay, and the, the first game released for the double-side screen was called Oil Painting. You now had to control both screens at the same time, and it was showing the advance, advancements of what Nintendo was capable of creating. The next double-screen title they put out was one that was important to the future, game, uh, future video games, Donkey Kong. The Game & Watch had now spread from Japan to America, and the release of Donkey Kong was instrumental in the future of Nintendo because of one thing, the new control pad. Donkey Kong was supposed to use a small joystick to replicate the experience of playing an arcade game, but this is going to cause a few problems. The console wouldn't be able to close properly, and then there was also the risk that the joystick could snap off. To work around this problem, Nintendo came up with a new control option that put different directional buttons close together so they could be used easily together. It was called the D-pad and was instrumental in the success and development of the NES and Super Nintendo, and it would become pretty much the standard for the entire video game industry. You could play the game without having to look at which way you were pressing. From the double screen, Nintendo moved into new tabletop video games. They had color screens and panoramic viewing options, and the movements also allowed for a color screen that used very little battery. They accomplished this by using a mirror system, and a device could run up for three years on two C batteries before needing to be changed. At this point, Nintendo had brought in other licensed characters such as Snoopy and Popeye. And if you go back a few episodes in the archives, I've done an episode 
on how Popeye is really responsible for everything to do with Super Mario Brothers. And again, a lot of the modern success of Nintendo. That's an interesting story if you want to go check that out. So the Game & Watch continued into the 1980s, but Nintendo had been playing around with a home video game system before that. As far back as 1972, they created the Magnavox Odyssey, which was the first commercially available video game console. In 1977, they released the Color TV Game 6 and the Color TV Game 15. The 6 and the 15 indicated how many games were included with each. They had obviously released arcade games such as Donkey Kong, but needed a new system to showcase the advancements in technology. Enter the Family Computer, or Famicom. The game watches were a hit, and Nintendo had sold over 43 million of them. In 1982, they came up with the early prototype, which they called the Advanced Video Game System. It contained a tape drive, that light gun I mentioned earlier, a joystick, and at its core, a computer similar to the Atari or the Commodore 64. This was the prototype, and the Famicom was about taking this idea, but making it cartridge-based. For the control pads, it made sense to take the same type they used on the already popular Game & Watch, as they would seem familiar and easy to adopt to. They launched the Famicom in 1984 with Popeye, Donkey Kong, and Donkey Kong Jr. It didn't catch on right away, but soon became the best-selling console in Japan. Next, they had to take on America, but that required a few changes. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So this leads us into the great video game crash of 1983. And if you've been around this podcast for a while, you know this entire story. I've covered it a lot and I've done entire big episodes just about the video game crash of 83. Whether it was specifically related to the E.T. Atari video game is still up for debate, but it certainly didn't help matters. But the thing is, there was this massive crash. And believe it or not, there was a time after this when companies in the U.S. wanted nothing to do with video games. Atari had ruled the landscape, and then this whole industry crashed because of them in spectacular fashion. A once billion-dollar industry was now only worth a few hundred million. And like I said, the big toy companies like Mattel and Kenner, they just wanted nothing to do with video games. So... Nintendo had a tall order on their hands because they were entering into the U.S. market at the worst possible time. They needed to give the Famicom a total overhaul, but keep the heart of it still the same. They redesigned the console in a futuristic space gray instead of the red and white version that had already existed. They also needed to separate themselves from anything to do with video games. 
they changed the top loading cartridge system that was just like the Atari. If you need to, again, do a quick Google image search for the Famicom to see the difference of the design factor. So just like Atari, you put the cartridge in at the top. They wanted to change that. They didn't want it to look anything like Atari. They went with a front-loading system, which seemed more like a VCR, which had now become more popular. They also needed to change the terminology. Instead of being a video game console, Nintendo would have a control deck. Instead of using video games, they used game packs. Instead of using a joystick, they had a control pad. And instead of being called a video game system, Nintendo would be called an entertainment system. And that led to their rebranding as Nintendo Entertainment System, or NES. So obviously you know how this whole story plays out, because of course the Nintendo catches on like wildfire and changes the video game industry forever. Video games were no longer taboo, and every company wanted to get on board with them. But Nintendo made some smart moves in those early days, because they had their, if you remember on the game packs, the Nintendo seal of approval stamped on it. And that would meant this was a quality game approved and authorized and if not completely made by Nintendo. The big problem Atari had is they let anyone put out video games, and that led to massive quality issues, again, that they weren't monitoring. It, the industry was so big and just running wild that they didn't think they needed to monitor or supervise, or they were just basically riding the high of this billion-dollar um, company that they now had. So they let anyone put out these games, and that just led to all this garbage. Nintendo learned from their mistakes, and again, the Nintendo seal of quality was the sign these video games were legit. Another big thing you might not have noticed, but this is actually really significant. If you, depending how old you are, if you grew up with the Atari, you remember how amazing the artwork for those Atari games were. When you bought the packaging it looked like a work of art. It, it looked amazing. When you looked at the logo on the game itself, it, it looked stunning. Uh, even the instruction booklet, the imaging made this thing look like you were just going to walk into Star Wars or something. And when you put the game in, of course, it looked nothing like that. I mean, with absolutely limited technology, the graphics were limited to you know, squares and dots and lines and, and stuff like that. And the idea with the video games, the packaging and the designs and the beauty and the creation was they were trying to kind of convince you at your young age to envision this world, despite how plain the actual gameplay and graphics looked, but that you would pretend you are actually in a spaceship fighting these space invaders coming in. Nintendo learned from that mistake too. It was kind of Atari's problem of like, over-promising and under-delivering. Nintendo went the opposite route. And if you remember those first original Nintendo games, the image on the games and on the cases and the cartridge packs, the whole deal, had that 8-bit technology. So if you bought Mario Tennis, you saw the image of exactly what you were going to play. There was no surprises there. So, you know, it was kind of what you see is what you get. Another very smart move. Nintendo was, when the NES was released, it was slowly released in 1985. By 1986, it was available everywhere. And quick story from myself, the Christmas of 1986 will go down in history in my household because I remember that's when we first got a Nintendo. Still probably the pinnacle Christmas of all time in my situation 
Again, I don't know how old you are. I don't know when you first got a Nintendo, but that was a significant year, 1986. Of course, the NES gave rise to the real era of video games, which has only continued to grow stronger and stronger over the last 30 years. Basically, none of this would have happened without the Nintendo Game & Watch. And you might have had one of these. You might have had one lying around. If you're older, you might have seen them in a pile of toys somewhere come across it it's simple hand like handheld game but you you recognize the control pad and the success of this thing is what helped lead to video games as we know it that control pad was so important in the future of nintendo and all video games and again it continued on all the way to the game boy it was that familiarity idea that any nintendo product you pick up you instantly know how to play it Kind of a similar approach done with Apple and iOS products, that it's sort of like a seamless infrastructure. If you know how to use one Apple product, you can use anything, whether you had, you know, the first iPhones or um, tablets or what, like, you know, the ecosystem, it's all seamless, it's all integrated. So you don't have to relearn it. That was the idea with Nintendo. The controller was there based from that original Game & Watch, Once you knew that, you knew all the future games. The Nintendo Game & Watch gave Nintendo the ability to create a new video game movement and redefine what video games could be. What was created out of an interesting way for adults to pass the time became a staple of pop culture and a beloved part of everyone's childhood. So, like I said, the Game & Watch has been sort of re-released in these new versions, so they're worth checking out. You can track them down on... Amazon or Best Buy or whatever. So it's, it's worth looking back if you want to sort of experience the origins of modern video games. So I wanted to finish by giving a shout out, quick little profile of the Patreon of the week. And this is the top level patrons that I'll discuss more about in a second. But just more to give, you know, quick little bios about the, you know, people that you're listening to or listening along with and the similar interests that, you know, everyone has. So this week, uh, Jonathan, I'm featuring. So just looking at some of his favorites related to the 80s. So favorite, his favorite 80s movie, tie between Beetlejuice and Field of Dreams. And he and I were talking, and again, this depending on when you listen to this, it could be dated or not, but that brilliant real-life Field of Dreams game that the Major League Baseball put on between the Yankees and the Chicago White Sox, where they filmed it in Iowa next to the original Field of Dreams field from the movie, and what like a brilliant setting that was. His favorite TV show, hands down, The Wonder Years. Excellent choice. So music, he's got a good mix of some real good 80s metal between Metallica, Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, Megadeth, Slayer, all those like hardcore bands, Angel Witch, King Diamond, awesome throwback stuff. His favorite cartoon, combination of a few things, Ninja Turtles, of course, I think that's got to be on everyone's list, Ghostbusters, G.I. Joe again, and then classic throwback favorite, Gummy Bears. Um, My younger niece, my sister has shown her the original Gummy Bears cartoons and it's blowing her mind. So these like are amazing cartoons, I think are perfect for any generation. So with the top tier patrons as well are able to, besides like little features like this, are able to suggest episodes and ideas for episode. And Jonathan actually had suggested a few specifically the episode I did where I looked at the cars of the 80s. 
And we looked at, you know, what the car industry was like, what was being created, what was coming out as long uh, as a look at the top, like pop culture cars from movies and TV. So I'm looking at, you know, like kit from Knight Rider and the A-Team van and all that. So that was an awesome episode that he suggested also led into the episode I just recently did all about the DeLorean and an amazing look back at the creation of this iconic car and side note as well check out the documentary on Netflix. It's a three-part series about John DeLorean, the creator of the DeLorean. And I touch, you know, I cover all this stuff about him in the podcast episode. This documentary is stunning. And as much as I thought I knew about this guy, it, it goes so much deeper on this guy who's, I don't know, part madman, but part genius. It, it's amazing. And uh, just the evolution of this car and all the problems and the drug trafficking he did, to, trafficking, trying to raise money to get this thing going and why it was produced in Ireland. Uh, it's crazy. Three-part series. Check it out. Hopefully it'll be up for quite a while. So that's what Patreon is. And it's this online communities to support, uh, you know, smaller independent podcasts or creators and all kinds of things. And that's the thing with podcasting, as great as it is, it's harder for smaller shows like this to stand out against celebrities, companies, gigantic podcast networks. So where you do on Patreon is just, you know, small donations for like a few bucks a month, support the show, but then there's different audio rewards that come with it. And there's the different tiers. So like, this is the top tier I'm talking about here where you can, you know, get the shout outs and profiles and suggest episodes. And then I've got, say, the Boba Fett tier, which is right in the middle. That gives you access to the Everything 80s Movie Club, which I do on Patreon to just review the good, the bad and the ugly of 1980s movies. So it's a good community and good way to support shows like this. Like I support um, a few different podcasts on it just because they're ones I listen to all the time. I love the creators. I love what they're doing, everything like that. So if you want more information, just go to patreon.com slash 80s, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash 80s, or wherever you're listening to this on, there should be a link that'll take you right there if you want to see more. But that's it for me. Thank you for taking the time just to listen to this episode and supporting podcasting in general. It means a lot. But I will be back soon with the new episode. Don't you dare miss it.